0: Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, and to all those who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me ever wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under an oak in Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him Came to Lutz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Elonbekuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day the pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal where Israel was living in that region. Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar and Zebulun the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin the sons of Rachel's maidservant Bilhar Dan and Naphtali the sons of Leah's maidservant Zilpah; Gad and Asher these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in memory near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had stayed Isaac lived a hundred and eighty years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
1: Thanks, Linda. All right, Genesis 34, 5. I'm going to pray and uh, we'll take a closer look at this chapter together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this part of your word Thank you that it is an important uh, part of your dealings with your ancient people, uh, particularly earlier on. And I ask that you would be with us now as we work through it together and speak to us in our faith or wherever we are at with you uh, so that we might come to know you more and trust you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was in high school, I hated geography. Anyone here hate geography? Yep, got a hand on the back. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as soon as I could, I ditched it. Did you like geography? Oh my gosh. Seriously, you like geography? Okay, well fine. Alright, maybe I'm alone. That's alright. Well clearly I'm not, there's someone up the back. Yeah. <laughs> history. Yeah, history is my, more my back. But anyway. Uh, geography. Uh, I ditched it as soon as I could. Uh, but that choice, uh, I have to admit, hasn't done me any favours. So um, because now I'm useless. I'm absolutely useless with places and maps. I rang the NRMA one day to uh, help with my car and I had to walk down to the end of my street to check out the cross street because I couldn't remember it. Um, I've forgotten it since, I can't even remember it now. Uh, so Maybe Dad could tell me. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> Needless to say, uh, I'm useless with places and maps, but it turns out that geography can be uh, really, really helpful sometimes. Uh, who would have thought? Like today with Genesis 35. Uh, that we're going to be looking at, because there's a lot of travelling from one to one place to another uh, in this chapter. So, I put my massive geographical skills to the test and I drew a map of Jacob's journey. Are you excited about this? Oh man, I am! Here it is. Okay, I didn't draw that map, but I drew the line. So, uh, so here it is. We'll be tracing uh, the tracking the movements. As kind of the main points in the talk this morning. So, firstly, Jacob, uh, so he's come down from where he was with his uncle, uh, up here in the previous chapters, and he's confronted or he's reconciled with his uh, brother Esau here, like we saw, and then, uh, that's where we are. And then he moves to Shechem, uh, after that. Right. So first, in this chapter, after moving to Shechem, we'll see that, uh, Jacob and his family move, they leave Shechem behind. And we're going to see, this is something of a recommitment to God. Uh, Second, he lands in Bethel uh, to renew his hope in God's word. And then finally, he moves to Mamre to live in the, what we're going to call the now and the not yet. So, that's where we're going today. uh, As we sit with some weighty topics. Yeah, you like that? Oh come on. While we fly over the promised land. (laughs) Yes. That's geography. (laughs) So first (laughs) off It's art. Anyway, all right. First up, recommitting uh to God by leaving Shechem behind. So, last week we looked at the disaster of chapter 34, and it was a disaster, right? It's horrible. Uh, the terrible consequences of Jacob not keeping his promise to, to God. Uh, 30 years or so, he'd, as mentioned before, he'd run away from his murderous brother, Esau, because he duped him out of the family inheritance, and he was running away. And as he was running, he slept at uh, Bethel. okay, And there God appeared to him uh, and promised to bless him and to be with him. Jacob is blown away by this kind of. Uh, he hedges his bets, he tells God if he brings if God brings him back home safely, he'll make Bethel the place that he builds an altar and establishes the house of God there. Well, after many years uh, God does safely bring him back home, uh, in, into the promised land. He does reconcile uh, with Esau. He wrestles, uh, God wrestles with Jacob and as a result Jacob is able to reconcile with Esau, his brother, and he comes back safely into the land. But Jacob forgets the promise that he made at his end of the bargain. He doesn't go to Bethel to make the house of God there. He goes to Shechem instead. And it's a complete disaster uh, in his passivity and his faithlessness. He cares less for his violated daughter and the bloody revenge of his sons than saving his own skin. It's like he parked his faith in God for like 10 years and decided to do things his own way. But amazingly, God doesn't ditch him. Uh, even though he seems to be absent throughout the whole time in Shechem. So we saw that in chapter 34. He's not really mentioned at all. Uh, nonetheless, he graciously initiates reconnecting with Jacob here at the beginning of chapter 35. So you read it uh, earlier. But there God said to him, then God said to him, go up to Bethel and settle there. Well, you said you're going to in the first place and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother also, but Esau. So So he does that. He goes to Bethel, he builds an altar to God there, like he promised, but not before uh, he recommits himself and his household to God. So verse 2 we read, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then, come, let's go up to Bethel, where I'll build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. So, uh, over, the, uh, over the ten years in Shechem, living closely among the Canaanites there, they've obviously picked up some of their culture, their religion, uh, and their practices. And in so doing, they've drifted away from God. And so, with God renewing things here with Jacob, Jacob looks to recommit himself and his household to God, and he does this in a couple of ways. He gets rid of their foreign gods, he buries them, and then he purifies themselves. By, they purify themselves by changing their clothes. And I thought this is an interesting picture, and maybe something that we need to think about doing ourselves, something like it uh, today. Maybe you know you've spent the last few years, or months, or weeks, or days... Drifting from God and his ways, you'd say you're a Christian, uh, but you haven't had that passion for Jesus that you once had. Maybe you've been let down. You've been let down by uh, church or by churches or fellow believers. Uh, Maybe you found a social group or a crowd that you fit in, you feel you fit in better with. Uh, Maybe you've just got caught up with life after COVID in habits that uh, you're finding hard to break. And so you've invested less in church, People, let alone helping out in ministries, at church, your church attendance might be spotty. Uh, You you can think of a hundred reasons not to be part of a Bible study group. You can't remember the last conversation that you had with an unbeliever, with Jesus, and reading the Bible that maybe just feels like duty rather than desire. Well, if, if that's you, maybe it's because you're in Shechem. When you promised you'd be in Bethel. And God is calling you back. Back to get invested in him again. To get passionate about the things that he's passionate about again. And maybe that calling, maybe he's calling you right now. Right now. To do it. So, recommit to him. Follow in Jacob's footsteps. Firstly, get rid of your foreign gods. There's a number of good ways, I reckon, to identify if we've got foreign gods in our life. Uh, Here's a couple. Firstly, think about what you spend your money on. Some people wear their heart on their sleeves, many more wear it in their wallet. And is your heart in those things that you're spending a lot of money to bring you, right? Do you see what every expense, every that the expense is saving you from, that what you're paying for, what that's saving you from, Saving you maybe from boredom, or from, or busyness, or loneliness, or purpose, purposelessness. What, what's the big pressure in your life that you're trying to rescue yourself with by spending money? And how is it that your money gives you hope, or purpose, or even identity? You know, I'm, I'm the person that saves for a holiday. That's me. That's, that's, people think of me, that's me. I'm the person buying that next bit of tech. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, that's me. I'm the person who's always beautifying my house. Or even, I'm the person who gives a lot of money to others. It's good to check where your identity is when it comes to money. How you're using it. It's one way to check the foreign gods you might have in your life or in your heart. What you spend your money on. And why. Secondly, what do you get angry about? Oftentimes, we, what we love the most is what we get angry about the most, when it's threatened, particularly. I got angry at Meg's the other day. I know. I can. Uh, we both agreed that I watch too much Netflix late at night uh, and that I should read instead, or just turn the lights off and go to sleep, which happens within seconds. Because... That would be, you know, that would have a wonderful knock-on effect, uh, in the amount of energy and time and thinking I could give to spending more time with God, uh, with my family, uh, at the very least. And yet one night, I was in the middle of an interesting episode of something. Meg's looks at me and she says, what are you doing? I got angry. I got frustrated. Nothing. Just in the middle of something. When are you gonna turn it off? I don't know. Soon? Leave me alone. <laughs> and then she coughed and under a breath under her breath said, Foreign God. <coughs> <laughs> no, no, she didn't say that. But she could have. She could have. You know, what is it in our life uh, that we get angry over when it's threatened? Because that'll show you where you where your love truly is. Maybe it's having control over your kid's life. Maybe it's me time on the screen maybe it's reading novels maybe it's in being heard now in and of themselves these things are good right they're good things but if we love them more than god and get super angry and fight for them more than for the things that god wants us to be angry about and fight for then maybe that's a foreign god in your life and so as god is calling us to recommit to him it's time to bury those foreign gods Maybe like Jacob did, bury your device somewhere, not under an oak tree necessarily, but maybe bury it somewhere at the end of the day so you can't access it. Maybe it needs to be something radical like cutting off whatever it is and giving it away, maybe. Or giving someone you trust permission to ask you how you're going with whatever that thing is. How are you spending your money? How are you going with that thing? And of course we can't do it all on our own, can we? As we look to bury our foreign gods, let's tell God about it, seek his help. Firstly tell him sorry that we for worshiping uh, them and then hear him speak to us from his word. These beautiful these beautiful words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he'll forgive us our sins and he'll purify us all from all unrighteousness. That's that's magic. That's beautiful. Jesus suffered and died under God's judgment for our sins, even the sins of worshiping foreign gods. And so as we confess to God about this, he promises to purify us. So as Jacob encouraged the household, his household to purify themselves in an outward kind of way, changing their clothes, uh, God actually does on the very inside of us. So by trusting in Jesus' death for us. God makes us pure before him. Our guilt and our shame, before him, they are wiped away. And so, as those who are pure on the inside by Jesus, we can start to, be, to put on pure stuff on the outside by Jesus too, as the Apostle Paul uh, encourages. In Ephesians, he writes, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what it looks like to recommit to Jesus. That's to get rid of any foreign gods, bury them in confession to God firstly, and then to know afresh you're pure before God on the inside so that you can live for Jesus on the outside, in a pure way. By putting on the new self. That is, being like God. Now, trying to be like God now, in the power of God's spirit, while we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Which brings us to the second point. In our passage, renewed hope in God's word. As we see Jacob move on to Bethel, in verse 6 there, where he promised that he said he'd go, and where God's told him to go, and there God ratches up, he ratchets up his promises to Jacob. So we see this in verse nine. God uh, appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, "Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel." So he named him Israel. Now, if you've been following the story, uh, you've probably heard this before, just a couple of chapters earlier, right? He, did, he said this uh, that you know, after that great scene, you know, where he's wrestling with God. Um, God changes his name there from Jacob to Israel, but then in the hiccup at Shechem, uh, he's only referred to as uh, Jacob, Uh, like he wasn't living up to his new name. But God's renewing things with him here. Jacob won't just be known as Israel this time, he'll be called Israel by God from now on. And then he establishes the same covenant or solemn agreement with Israel that he made with his grandfather, Abraham, back in chapter 17. Uh, and you can see the parallels if you put the passages together. So, sorry if that's a bit small, uh, but comparing passages from uh, Genesis 17 uh, and this passage here in uh, chapter 35. So like with Abraham, God calls himself uh, Almighty, God Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, like Abraham, like with Abraham, God changes Israel's name. So he changed Abram to Abraham like with Abraham God reconfirms his promises of nations and land coming uh, from him and like with Abraham God promises kings through his line and it's this last one which is a new is a kind of a new one for Israel that kings would come from his descendants which is going to be a bit of a thing as the bible goes on because uh, the oldest Normally inherits the father's estate. So, humanly speaking, if there's to be a king in Israel, it's going to be the oldest, Uh, and that'd be Reuben, right? So, in verse 23, he's the oldest. But Reuben seems to try and take it for himself, sleeping with his dad's concubine, which in those days was actually what a usurper does—you know, someone trying to seize control. Uh, But he clearly fails. Israel heard of it. Reuben never ascends. Uh, the next in line after Reuben, well, they're Simeon and Levi. We heard about them last week. They oh, were well, lovely chaps, weren't they? Um, but they disqualify themselves uh, in Israel's eyes with their bloodthirsty murder vibes <laughs> in Shechem in chapter 34. Uh, which then lands on Judah, verse 23. And Judah, you might know, is the king of, is, sorry, the forefather of the king, of King David. uh, from which many kings come later on in the history of uh, the nation of Israel, including the promised Messiah, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the fulfilment of God's promises here to Jacob, to Israel. Uh, But more than that, he is said to be, Jesus is said to be God in the flesh, God's word incarnate. So to put your hope in God's word or God's promises then, as Israel does, or did here, is ultimately to trust in Jesus. Can you see how that works? Uh, not only for forgiveness now, but for future, the future promised land, which isn't a patch of dirt in the Middle East, but the promised new heavens and new earth. To live like Israel then uh, is to live in hope, the hope affirmed in God's word, God's promises, and fulfilled in Jesus. So as we look to recommit. To Jesus, let's renew our hope in him by hearing God's word afresh and digging into it. Uh, for those who maybe travel a little bit, get around in the car uh, with some device or whatever that you can plug onto your uh, stereo, there's a free uh, app, that uh, it's called Bible Gateway app, uh, it has a bunch of free Bibles on it that you can listen to. So they're audio Uh the New Testament version, particularly the UK reading, uh, is really good. Yeah, It's uh, David Suchet, I think his name is. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but he, David Suchet, yeah, I get that, right. He's the reader. He's very pleasant to listen to. Um, whoever you are, David, I love you. He's an actor. Oh, does he? There you go. Well, it sounds great. Yeah, I could have Googled it, but I didn't have time. So, so, very easy to listen to, and there are a number of other options as well. Not just in English, but in Korean and Chinese and uh, a number of other languages. So, that's just one way that you can be digging into God's Word. The best way to renew our hope in God's Word is to know it better, uh, and to let it sink in by reading it and listening to it and studying it. So as we look to recommit ourselves to Jesus, let's renew our hope in him, in God's promises, in his word, so that we're better able to live in this age while we wait for the next one, the next age, which brings us to our final point, living in the now, not yet. As Israel moves on from Bethel back home to his dad in Mamre. (coughs) Because as we touched on last week, we're in a similar situation to Israel. Uh, God blessed Israel, he's fulfilled some of his promises to him, God's kept him safe, God's prospered him and made him great, God's making him into a great nation. The list of sons from verse 23 is a sign of that. But the promised land, that's not yet his, right? It's Been promised to him, but he hasn't got it yet. And his descendants are nowhere close to the kind of nation that has kings yet. He, he's in the now and the not yet, God's promises which is a little bit like us. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, we have a heap of God's promises fulfilled. Promises to Abram and Israel of being a blessing to the nations through a king in their family line, which of course is King Jesus. Promises of God's complete forgiveness and total reconciliation with him as we trust in this King Jesus, as he died for our sins and rose from the dead. Promises uh, as we do that to adopt us into his family now and forever. These are fulfilled now. We have these promises as yes to us in Jesus now, but we're not home yet. We're, we're still waiting for the promised land, so to speak, for the time Jesus returns and bring in, brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And while last week uh, Jacob and his sons were an example of what not to do while we wait in this space, this week Israel shows us... A, I think, uh, a good example of what it might look like. Because while Israel faces death and betrayal on his way home to his dad, and the suffering and uh, that comes along with those things in life here and now, uh, he faces these hardships by faith and in hope. So his wife, uh, Rachel, dies in childbirth and gives cry to life lived in this world. Verse 18, as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son, Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. Ben-Oni, sounds like a Jedi, Ben-Oni-Wan Kenobi, <coughs> but in actual fact, uh, Ben-Oni, you know what that means? It means son of sorrow, and doesn't that name just capture what life is like, doesn't it? From the day we're born, like Benoni, we hurt people and cause sorrow, starting with our mum. People just hurt people. And then hurt people hurt people. We can't help it. And because of this, life is hard. And it's full of trouble and heartache and suffering and death. And yet, Israel, he seems seems to see things differently here. Even in the na- in the face of suffering and death, he renames his son Benjamin, son of the right, the right side being the favoured kind of lucky side. Where Rachel only sees death and sorrow, sees only Benoni. Jacob sees another reality a truer reality in the light of God's promises. And I reckon he renames his son to reflect something of that reality. And while the rest of this chapter uh, is full of betrayal with his son Reuben and further death with his dad Isaac, there's notes of the new life promised by God, the new life of his new son, and the fact that he gets to bury his dad with his reconciled brother Esau. And these notes of life and hope in the middle of all the death and suffering that Uh, Israel experiences here, they don't just describe what life's like here and now, they present us with two competing views of reality. On the one hand, we've got Rachel's view that life is full of sorrow and death, and that's the end. And on the other hand, we've got Israel's view that suffering and death are in the service of God blessing us. Israel's outlook shifts with his With God's promises in faith, He sees things as they really are. And so can we. So in the light of God's promises, we can properly see suffering and hardships and grief for what it really is. I don't mean to be trite in this at all. But it's a growth opportunity. So in the light of God's promises, we can properly see suffering and hardships and grief for what it really is a growth opportunity. Not in some insensitive and kitsch kind of way, like a motivational poster, but in in the most real way. As the Bible says elsewhere, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now the trials spoken of here uh, include the consequences of our own stupid sinfulness and the sinfulness of others. James goes on, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The point of trials and sufferings and hardships are not to grind us down and to destroy us. They are to grow us in Jesus, to make us spiritually mature. Yeah, no wonder the Bible elsewhere talks about suffering and hardships then as God's fatherly discipline. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as his children. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So hardships and sufferings in our life, they're not without purpose or point. They're God's fatherly discipline for our good. They're a sign of His love. To train us to produce righteousness and peace. And so, in the light of God's promises in Jesus, we actually have the power to rename or to, to call reality for what it really is. Not in some mechanical sense, you know, just like saying something enough times with enough conviction will make it so. You know, that's the wacky world of delusional positive thinking, and as some books uh, advocate, like the once very popular, The Secret, don't know if you remember that, don't bother reading it, where the uh, author Rhonda Bryan puts a uh, a mythical, a mystical spin on the law of attraction that like attracts like, especially at the level of thoughts, such that the more you think on something that you want and put it out into the universe, the more it'll be yours. But that's that's just to miss the point uh, on life in general. That it's <laughs> life's not about you, uh but it's about but it's also a understand the power to call reality for what it is. Power that only comes with faith in God's word as eternal and revealed in Jesus, who is unlike anything or anyone else. So in this now and not yet time, waiting to go home as we struggle with the hardships, the inevitable hardships and sufferings that we will, as you recommit your life to Jesus and renew your hope in God's word, learn to live in the now and the not yet by at least calling suffering and death for what it really is with faith in Jesus, God's tough love. To discipline us as his children and to grow us up. How are you going? How are you going with the hardships and trouble in your life? Are you despairing over them? Or have you been able to recognise them as God's discipline? And to rename them to reflect the greater reality in this here and now of God with you, your Heavenly Father, now and forever, seeking to grow you up. So, as we commit, look to recommit to God, Let's renew our hope in his word. Dig into it. As we boldly live in the now and not yet of God's promises. And I'm going to pray that that will be the case for us. (coughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for your care for us through your word. That you are intensely interested to keep us passionately interested in you and the things of your kingdom. Please help us to be mindful of those foreign gods in our lives that we might be loving more than you so that we might bury them in your strength and look to renew our hope in your promises by digging into your word, memorising those promises that you have made and fulfilled in Jesus and will fulfil in Jesus. Help us to cling to your promises and to your word and to the Lord Jesus as that word incarnate in the flesh over and above anything and anyone else, particularly as we look to live in the now and the not yet, the time of your promises fulfilled and not yet fulfilled, and that we might recognise the reality that we live in during this time, in the hardships and the sufferings, as actually opportunity that you provide as your children to grow into being the people you want us to be. We thank you for your love for us in Christ before time and into eternity future. And we thank you even for your tough love in the sufferings and hardships that we endure. Please grant us your perspective in these times and hope as we struggle and look forward to the time when Jesus will return and wipe every tear from our eyes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.